I've seen American flowers all across this land from the banks of the Shenandoah along the Rio Grande. Welcome to episode one of the Voices of Wisdom podcast. On this episode, I talk with my friend Sean King. Sean needs no introduction. He's one of the foremost activists and civil rights figures of our time. He's very well known on social media platforms uh, because he's not just there talking, he's there doing the work and literally saving lives in the process. Sean makes daily contributions to what is real, beautiful, and true in this world by naming the unnameable, speaking the unspeakable, and highlighting the dark side of the truth of who we are. In essence, Sean holds up a mirror to the collective, and for that reason, he just may be the most misunderstood man in America. We met at his offices in Brooklyn to get out to the root of who he is as a person. And I think you'll see what I see, that Sean King is a good man. He's a kind, wise, considerate, loving, gentle, compassionate man who does what he does with the heart of a minister. There are multiple ways to get involved with the work that Sean's doing in the world, and I'll have links to some of those in the show notes at the end. I hope this episode inspires you to bring your own brand of goodness into the world. And without further delay, here is my interview with Sean King. Do not feel the winter blowing in the hearts of men. I've seen American flowers, they will bloom again. I have to start out telling the story. So I, I, I got to know your brother, Jason, and then I uh, got to know your mom, and I had no idea that you were all related. Oh, I knew they were related, but yeah. I didn't know they were related to you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, they just never brought it up. Yeah. You know, and I never... Well, I think they did. I think Jason and my mother were both super protective. He was always my big brother, even as we, um, even, even, even as we got older and got married and had kids. I never stopped seeing him as my big brother, even as the older we got, you know, we were both in our 30s, you know, both right. in our 40s. Like, I still saw him as that. And then as I became well-known, he became even more kind of protective of me. Uh, and my mother was the same. And so, you know, I we were a close, close family. But I think they tried to hold, you know, those cards close to their chest. And, I, you know, I think... Even Jason wanted to make sure that he and I both, you know, we actually were pastors together. We pastored a church. I was a senior pastor. He was an executive pastor of a church I started in Atlanta. And uh, we both served on staffs of other churches for years before that. And I, I think also in the, in the years before he passed, as I became more and more known, he, he also wanted to make sure that people just knew that he was speaking for himself and that he wasn't either that his views didn't represent me or my views didn't represent him necessarily and um so he, he they both kind of hold those cars close to their chest and, yeah but no they respected you a lot man and, and he had told me about you before my mother had told me about you and so um i was telling you uh my mother who was just the biggest supporter of me and Jason both. We didn't grow up with our fathers. Jason and I had different fathers and we, we never grew up with our fathers. And a lot of people say, you know, hey, my mother was my mother and my father. And our mom was never really like that. She was just our mother. 
Like she wasn't playing catch with us or, you know, like, you know, she was just a sweet, super supportive woman. Mm-hmm. And, and, and what I was telling you was, as kids, you know, my mom was in her early 20s. She may have just been 20 or so when she had Jason. Okay. And she was in her mid-20s or so when she had me. And so when when I'm eight, nine years old, you know, my mother's in her mid-30s. I didn't see her as a young woman, you know? Like, I didn't see her as a full human. Wow. I just saw her as mom. And it wasn't until I was in my 20s and 30s and 40s that I started thinking, like, oh, this is how my mother felt in her 20s, 30s, and 40s. And I think kids have a way of, because kids only know what they know, and they have a way of kind of reducing the humanity of their parents and forgetting that they have heartache and pain, that they have stress and dreams. And, you know, as a kid, I was I was never thinking about that with my mom, you know, like she was just this kind of ever-present, super hard-working force in our family. And I, I, I just didn't see her in the way I do now as an adult. I didn't see her as someone who was working through all her own issues and pain and stress, just didn't even have the, the context to understand it. Mm-hmm. That, uh, there's this, there was this story... Um, there were several times, man, where I was telling you, my mother's kind of, all of my kids get a crack out of seeing Granny on Facebook because she's so outspoken. She was always that way, man. And I think that's a huge part of even where I got it from was, um, I mean, she was she always spoke her mind. She was always brutally honest. And um, I can remember a few occasions, this wasn't, her normal disposition was sweet, but if you crossed her, she would let you have it. <laughs> I remember. I, I mean, I remember a couple of occasions seeing her like cuss some stranger out in a parking lot, or I mean, just like I mean, she was she had a full range of emotions. Yeah, and um, I think we come from the same family. <laughs> it sounds right. like my mom and grandma. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. I remember one time. I, I wish I'll have to ask my mother because now I can't remember. But Jason and I used to tell this story all the time. We moved a lot, man. I mean, like we moved like clockwork every ten, twelve months, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it was just fact of life for us. Like we we weren't thinking like, "Good Lord, we got to move again." It was just like you knew every year you moved. Like if the lease ran out, or I don't even if she broke the lease, I don't even quite know what happened. But we moved all the time. And, we were living in this house that, like, sometimes we'd move into a house and we like, we felt like we struck it rich. And then it was like, you know, we had our own bedroom or something. It was like, wow, this is great. And other times we moved into a house and it was terrible. Yeah. And we, we lived in this house that we didn't like. I don't know what all was going on in my mother's life at that time. I'd like to go back and ask her, but she was way more stressed back then. And uh, she, she got a hammer. I don't know if she was mad. I don't remember if she was mad at us or mad at something and threw it at the front door and the hammer just like stuck in the front door. Wow. And, <laughs> and I remember from that moment on, I don't remember the incident. I mean, she wasn't throwing it at us. Something, but something had set her <clears throat> off. And 
I remember Jason and I just thinking like, I'm never crossing this one. <laughs> you know, and he's level a, of respect. Yeah, he's a huge guy, man. I mean, he was 6'5", 240, 250 pounds, but uh, he loved her like crazy. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, even now, as a parent myself, I, I see their relationship differently because she had him for six or seven years before she even had me, where it was just the two of them. And uh, as a parent, I now see that and think like, wow, they must have been amazingly close. But as a kid, you, you're just not thinking of the bonds parents have with their kids. Yeah. You know? But So everything you just said about your mom and not fully humanizing her, um, when we get back in the other room, can you teach Silas that? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you see, it's, I think it's, the, it's one of those lessons that you don't fully understand until you're a parent, you know, like right. I'm writing a book now and I talk about when my wife and I first started having kids. And I remember we first started having, we had our first baby, but we also had to work and have these other things. And it was just then that I realized like, oh my God, my mom did this for 20 years, mm. went to work and came home and fixed dinner and did the laundry and kept the house clean. And to me, it was just all background noise as a kid. Yeah. Kids, are, I think, kids are way dumber than they know. <laughs> and uh, and they don't have the capacity to understand the decisions and sacrifices and all that that their parents make, man. Yeah. So yeah. now we, um, it, it took me a long time. I loved my mother dearly when I was growing up, but it took me a long time to fully appreciate all that she was putting into raising us, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, she's a uh, she speaks so highly of you when we talk. Oh yeah, she's, oh, she's, she's yeah. She's been. Um, I tell people, man, like there were low, low points. We grew up in Versailles, Kentucky. It looks like Versailles, mm-hmm. but it's it's country, <laughs> right? So it, it's not going to be a country town called Versailles. <laughs> so they call it Versailles. Yeah, right between it's right between Lexington and Frankfurt, and um, uh, I I was spoiled rotten by my mother for maybe the first 12 or 13 years of my life like we were super close yeah like i saw her in my early childhood as like my you know my favorite person on earth and when i got to high school it got weird for me real quick and i started dealing with a lot of racism and bigotry and ugliness and so around middle school kids what, started doing what well, middle you know, schoolers do. Well, and, no, no, man. In elementary and middle school, I was always popular and well-liked. Okay. Always. I was, I'd be elected to school-wide positions. I mm-hmm. would, leading role in the school play. Like, I was a universal student in a lot of, and, and a bridge builder. Um not just not just as a young person, but I'll tell you when we circle back in a second, I loved being a bridge between cultures, between black and white culture, between rich and poor. Like I was often a, I was often a friend that served as a bridge mm. between a lot of different communities. Yeah. And I I relished that. Like I was often the connecting piece between groups that normally wouldn't have a lot to do with each other. Mm. 
And, and you know, what's, what's amazing is that um, your work has the potential to do that now if people wouldn't project well, what's onto you the way that they do. Well, what's crazy is up until, so I just turned 40 this year, for the first 35 years of my life, that was my story. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, not just, not just as a young person, not just as a boy, as a, as a pastor, I brought, our church was multi-racial, multi-ethnic. It, we had rich and poor people from all walks of life. And even in the Christian community, I was often a bridge between cultures and people and politics. So I was regularly, I mean, I spoke at every Christian conference and event and all of that. And I was often kind of, even in that, a a bridge builder, Mm -hmm. uh, a conduit between communities that didn't necessarily integrate in those ways. And so it wasn't until the Black Lives Matter movement began and I started speaking out on police brutality that virtually all of my white friends, including pastors that I had known forever, they just bailed. Mm -hmm. And uh, it stung, man. Like I, I still see myself as a bridge builder. Like it's, Mm -hmm. it was who I was for 35 years. And, and uh, I did an interview in 2014. Um, In about a month, there were four horrible cases of police brutality, and the whole country was talking about it. We're here in New York right now. It was Eric Garner. Mike Brown was killed in Ferguson. There was a young man named John Crawford who was killed in Ohio, and a young man named Ezell Ford in Los Angeles. And all I, had, all I was doing was really tweeting and Facebooking about it. I've, I've been a writer for most of my life, and so I just tried to like break it down in simple ways. And I did two interviews, one with BBC and one with NPR over the phone. This is in August of 2014. And um, when they introduced me from BBC, they introduced me as like the controversial leader, Sean King. Mm. And they hadn't patched me in yet. Like they, they were talking about me, but they hadn't patched me into the radio interview yet. And I remember thinking like, what the hell? <laughs> like, like, what, like, what do you, what, what have, what have I, I didn't, I didn't know right. even then that just a few weeks into speaking about this that they saw me as controversial. Then I did the interview with NPR just an hour or so later and they did the same, similar introduction but called me divisive. Mm. And I remember thinking like, what's going on here? Yeah. And what it meant was like the, the, the words, the statements, the things that I was fighting for, mainstream America was bothered by it. Mainstream mm-hmm. white America was right. bothered by it. And I just hadn't considered it. And uh, I didn't know, I was good friends with a pastor who had been a, a mentor of mine, well, well-known pastor. And this was in late 2014 and, and I'd really thrown my whole life into fighting against police brutality. I'd always spoken out against injustice my whole life. And I'll tell you what, where they came from. But I, I was feeling real down, man. And I had reached out to this pastor many times across the years for support and guidance and prayer. 
And I used to text message him like back in the day between like 2008 and 2013 or so. But we had started to mainly DM each other on Twitter. And um, I went to Twitter and I typed his name in uh, in the search box and I couldn't find him. And then I went to my DMs and started scrolling so I could find him and he had blocked me. Mm. And this was a guy, I, I love this guy. Mm-hmm. He had supported my family in, in like practical, tangible ways. And I, I saw him as a mentor. And uh, I finally found his phone number and texted him. And I thought it was an accident. That was my default, like he had accidentally blocked me. Mm-hmm. And he told me that he was so bothered by the stuff I was saying on social media that he just blocked me. Wow. And it was like, clearly he didn't think of me the way I thought of him. Mm-hmm. Like, I saw him as a mentor and he, he clearly saw me as disposable. Mm. Or e- easy to discard at least right. and it was, a, it was a rude awakening man where I realized oh this is all of this strikes to the heart of what people value most and what I realized was that most of my white Christian pastor friends all pastored in the deep south in in Mississippi, Arkansas, Louisiana, Georgia. And what I realized was that their Christianity and their politics were so deeply intertwined that offending them politically seemed to also mean offending them religiously. Mm. And I just hadn't, I think I knew that in a intellectual way but being on the receiving end of it, mm-hmm. it stung, man. I, I, I don't think I've ever gotten over it. Yeah. And I, since 20, I spoke at every Christian conference you could speak at, man. All of them. And since I started speaking out on police brutality, I've never been invited back to any of them. Wow. Not once, ever. And Is that difficult to not still be seen as a pastor? No. You know, it's not, I don't mind that people don't see me as that. I I hate that on social media, social media reduces you to small, small tweets. It it reduces you to a caricature of who you really are. Mm -hmm. So I was a pastor for a huge chunk of my life. I think the only thing that bothers me is that a lot of people who just now have started following me don't even know that I ever was a pastor, don't even know that it was even a part of my life. Mm-hmm. And so what happens is you kind of get reduced to just a small sliver of who people think you are. Right. And um, so I, re- I regret that. I just regret that the time we are in is so problematic that many people who had found ways to be partners before are, are now deeply separated mm-hmm. and um, um, so people I accept now that people see me as divisive and controversial but it hasn't always been this way would you say that um, your current work is is just what your ministry looks like now I feel that way yeah absolutely man I I don't even think about it so much in terms of 
I, I think it is, this is my ministry. I see fighting for justice, fighting for, for people who've often been victimized and wronged. I see it as ministry. Mm-hmm. I don't actively think of it as such. I'm just doing it. Mm-hmm. And but when, you, when you have a prophetic voice, it seems to be that uh, prophets typically call out collective sin, yeah. not just individual sin, but the social level sin. And it seems to always be, uh, it seems to be that the cost is always very similar to what you it is, what you've man. just expressed. And, and you know, you know that. But as I said earlier, knowing it and experiencing it are very different. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm up to my eyeballs in a, a death penalty case of a man named Rodney Reed, and um, we fought for weeks to. He was supposed to be executed in two days from now, mm-hmm. and we helped get millions of people to sign our petition and make phone calls and send emails, and they stopped his execution. Well, now there are several people who are saying, like, hey, where where we duped? Is this man actually a horrible man? And... I see, I worked for years in jails and prisons full-time uh, from 2004 to almost 2008. And I, I see even men and women who have committed horrible crimes as full human beings. Mm-hmm. I mean, ones that have, I spent years of my life, I, I tell this, and it's hard for people to hear, I don't think I ever met in the four years I worked in jails and prisons I only had one or two people who came to me and said, Sean, I didn't do this. Mm-hmm. The other thousands and thousands of people I've worked with, they did it. Right. And I loved them and valued them mm-hmm. as people. And they had often done sometimes horrible, horrible things. Mm-hmm. And I did not, I could not reduce them to monsters and still be effective. I was I was a traveling teacher and I would travel from jail and prison. I had a contract with a company that provided educational services all over Georgia. And uh, if you see them as monsters or animals, you can't you can't teach. Right. You can't be effective, you know. And so even with Rodney Reed, I was seeing literally just a few minutes before you and I met, uh, some people were saying like horrible things about me working with this guy and uh, somebody from the Innocence Project who is really managing this case reached out to me and said, Sean, every case we've ever had where we exonerated people, it's 367 people they have freed from death row. They said, Sean, every time we did this, people called us monsters for working with these men who were later found to actually be innocent. And so that the cost of standing up for people is so severe it's it's hard man it mm-hmm. makes you it makes you think twice sometimes about even doing the work because the cost it stings yeah you know and yeah. uh i all over instagram and twitter today people are saying the worst things about me regarding this case mm-hmm. and there was a part of me that thought that could happen but then when it really happened, mm-hmm. I thought I was in the clear. Yeah. And then it just came back anyway. And so yeah. I I thankfully I don't do the work 
for because I don't do the work for the praise. Right. It doesn't crush me when I also get slammed. Yeah. I, I do it for other reasons. I you appreciate know? you sharing all of this. It's a it's a lot of um, it's a lot of heartbreak. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. And uh, I spent a lot of time with a lot of a lot of heartbreak and pain. Mm-hmm. I am normally the guy you call when things in your life have completely fallen apart, mm-hmm. be it a shooting victim or a victim of police brutality or somebody that feels their loved one is wrongly convicted. Mm-hmm. Like I am often with people in their lowest moments. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. I don't know if you really realized it. I think I, I sort of mentioned it briefly in a previous email, but... Um, back when you reached out and said, hey, homie, I'm in your corner. Yeah. My family and I were actively trying to get out of Mississippi, and we're mm-hmm. out now, but um, such a smaller scale than what you go through. Yeah, no, I saw, you, such no, I saw what you were going through, man. Yeah. And, uh, but I, I don't, I mean, I'm in awe of how you can, can do this on the daily for years because, I mean, I was to the point of wanting to surrender just so the pressure could be off of my wife and my son. Oh, no, I have that thought almost every day, man. The past few weeks have been so hard that I told my wife, who's in in our office now, I told her a couple days ago, I said to her, I I said, I think I need a couple days off. Yeah. It had just, uh, I I rarely take a day off. But I told her, I said, I'm close to kind of hitting a wall because... The uh, the opposition and the difficulty, you can endure it, but sometimes it hits a scale and a depth where it's hard to endure. And mm-hmm. there have been many times where my mother, and my wife, even even a few of my kids have wished that I was doing something else. Right. And and I feel like a tremendous sense of guilt not doing something else. Um, I so I I carry it with me, and I try to do everything I can to protect them from the consequences of it. Mm-hmm. But it it finds its way to impacting them anyway. Right. So uh, and some a phenomenon that 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 I've seen is a uh, so you have the more um, conservative folks blasting you, but then there's this whole thing where more progressive folks tend to eat their own. Yeah. Where, where you know, a lot of conservative people. Uh, this is not a blanket statement, but for a lot of times, we'll like, uh, you know, there's just a stand by your man sort of mentality, yeah. and then so I see you catching it from both sides. Yeah, and that's tough, man, because I think I think I understand it though. Like I think I think all my years as a pastor and even my training in seminary and elsewhere helped me understand why some of why people act the way they do um people are really people are hurting right now people Mm -hmm. are afraid Mm -hmm. people are really on pins and needles with a lot of issues and what ends up happening is because you may not be able to reach an enemy that you actually have sometimes people in the communities i'm in will just react to the people that are available. You know, it's mm-hmm. like, it's the same concept of how people could be abusive toward people they love. It's like, it wasn't personal as much as you were there. 
they were hurt and you were in and you were there right and what happens is in so many cases and causes and stories i'm right there and so it ends up making me a really easy target for people and it's rough man it's uh the best i've been able to do is to isolate myself from almost all of the noise mm-hmm. good and bad so that i can just focus the best i can and do the work mm-hmm. um if i think too much about the 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 criticisms that people have one way or the other it'll you know it'll it'll freeze me from doing the work so yeah it's tricky man yeah is it difficult to stay present as a uh, spouse and as a uh, parent? Oh yeah, man, it's a pro- it's a problem. Um, particularly, it comes in waves for me. Like if I am deeply, deeply involved in a case or a project, I tend to become so obsessed with it, and that's how I have been over these past couple weeks. That every other thing in my life. I neglect, even if it's my own physical health, emotional health, my relationships with my family or my kids. I'm I'm not proud of that at all, but it's a trend of my life that when I get deeply, deeply involved in something, it, it ends up having a negative impact on mm-hmm. my relationships with staff of the companies that I manage. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the irony of it is, is sometimes it's my laser focus that allows me to get something done or to break through in some kind of way. But my family pays a major price. And yeah. I've seen that. Um, I've studied civil rights leaders and they often struggled in their marriages. And I don't say that as an excuse. I say it as a warning. Mm-hmm. Like I emotionally would rather have a good marriage than be known as a good leader. I'd rather, I'd rather have both if possible, but I struggle to find that balance. And, um, and so there are waves of time where I am really present. Mm -hmm. And I think the family has learned to, you know, to ride the waves with me over the years. But there are times where, uh, sometimes I, think about wishing I could find a way to move away and just like uh, my wife asked me one time she's like Sean why don't you be a postal worker or or go back to being a school teacher or something and I know what she means yeah and but there are times where I I miss that for sure I'm just thinking about all the negative projections and all the false accusations and I mean you're both so incredibly kind and soft-spoken oh man it's just such a mismatch with the reality of, of who you but both see, that's are. What, that's the pain of social media and the internet is that it reduces people to a tweet of who somebody else says you are, you know, mm-hmm. and it's part of over these past few months, my wife has stepped up like four or five years ago, we decided to kind of insulate her and the kids from all the ugliness. Mm-hmm. So she didn't have any social media accounts, wasn't on the internet. We kept the kids off of social media. And the benefit of that was it protected them from a lot of the, the worst things. Mm-hmm. The, the flip of that is, for my wife in particular, 
was as people accused me as, of, of all types of horrible things, the insinuation is that she's a part of this as well. Right. And so she felt not just out of her love for me, but out of her respect for herself over these past few months, she has tried to come out and say, like, no, none of that is true. Um, At the end of the day, we have to find our our value and our worth in in doing the good that we try to do. Mm -hmm. And, And then she and I both go out of our way to make sure that Every decision we make is with integrity and honor. We have so many checks and balances in our lives. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it's a weird thing to be in this ecosystem where people can post a lie about you as if it's true, right. and it can spread across the whole internet. Man. Right. Yeah, it's a problem. So, you know, there's there's so much secondary trauma yeah. and so much burnout. And, and uh, I'm just wondering if you have any advice for other people doing the work Um, oh yeah man I I have so I'm not I'm definitely not a great role model in all of this but there are things I do that have allowed me to survive and still be here in one piece Um, I have probably four or five things that I do that are just disciplines I've created over the years Mm -hmm. Um, we all my family and I always take vacations or breaks whenever we can where even if we just go to the next state over it might not even be fancy or nice or swanky or anything like that but just where we unplug and get away and where we put our phones away normally turning them off and just enjoy each other's company not for a few hours but for a week Mm -hmm. uh, for several days at least we try to take a one big trip a year if we can afford it, um, even if it's like to somewhere like like Disney or across the country to California. We've tried to take that every year. We look yeah. by the time we get to it, we really need it. Yeah. Like by the time we get to that, it feels like we wish we'd had it earlier. Right. I do little things. Um, at night, I put my phone on airplane mode probably at about nine o'clock every night. And that means there's a whole host of people who can't reach me. But um, if it's a critical emergency, there are other ways to find me. If it's right. if it's my mother or something, she'll call one of the kids or something else. Right. And so I do that just so that I'm not on my phone deep into the night when I should be resting or in bed with my wife and... Um, I don't take my phone to the dinner table. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't. I don't have my phone out when I go out on a date with my wife. Mm-hmm. And these are things I've developed. Right. So I don't want people to think I've been doing this. <laughs> <laughs> I've developed it over time. And yeah. so now, if I brought my, if I pulled my phone out on a date or at the dinner table, it'd be a huge disappointment to the family because mm. they've grown to accept or, or expect rather that. I'm going to be fully present in those moments. So even though during the bulk of the day, I may really be doing some grueling, difficult work, Mm -hmm. I try, I try hard not to bring it home. Um, I had a mentor of mine who, this was almost longer than 10 years ago now, I I was taking all of my work home and 
uh, and it was a problem for my wife and kids. Like I was stressed when I did my work, but I brought all of my work. I was working at home, from home, talking about it at home. And he helped me create this like visualization exercise where he says, Sean, imagine when you're when you're not at home and you and you you're on your way home and you pull up to the door. He said, imagine yourself taking off like a construction hard hat, taking that hard hat off and, you know, laying it at the front door. And he said, imagine yourself putting on a baseball cap or or something else when you walk into the house, like to help me transition, like, okay, this is not work, this is family. Mm -hmm. And let me go in here and be dad, husband, Mm -hmm. let me be fully present and alert. And I don't do the visualization anymore, but I did it for years, Mm -hmm. so much so that now I know that when I cross that threshold, it's time to transition. And it's taken me years to develop that, but um, if you don't set up boundaries for your work, um, it it will spread everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so I've tried to put hard boundaries wherever I can. Yeah. And I say this half joking and half serious. Uh, being a pastor's wife really prepared Ray for what she's oh, yeah. dealing with now, huh? Yeah, I think so, man. No, it's yeah. no, it really did. I yeah. mean, um, good, bad, and ugly. I mean, I think she came to understand the, um, the complexity of people mm-hmm. and of the problem is um, every, every person is hurting in some kind of way. But as a pastor and with the work I do now, I work with people who are often deeply hurting. Mm-hmm. And what that means also is a wide variety of personalities, of conflicts, of problems. Mm-hmm. It's, it's messy work. And having done it as a pastor and a pastor's wife, it prepares you for the reality that the work has highs and lows in, in major right. ways and that that you know broken people can their pain can be expressed in ways that can often be very hurtful mm-hmm. and damaging and um, you have to you have to find a way to to ride it out the I think the biggest thing I've struggled with is something I never thought would happen to me I I think for the first 37 years of my life, I was very much a, a feeler, and uh, and I'm still probably more sensitive than the average person. But I think I was a very, very sensitive person in in the positive way that I really cared about people's thoughts, feelings, and over the past couple years. I've seen a counselor about this myself. I've kind of flipped a switch to protect myself from the negativity. I've accidentally made myself numb Mm. to people in general. And I didn't intend it to be that way, but... Do you think that's something that more happened to you than you you did it? I mean... Well, like yes, how you no. build up calluses, you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, it did happen to me over time, but my my the way I protected myself from it was I kind I kind of flipped the switch off to say 
I no longer care about what these people say about me. Mm-hmm. But what I also flipped off was a switch of caring about what anybody thought about me. Mm. And I have struggled to find a way to, in a, in a nuanced way, flip one switch on and the other mm-hmm. off. So to protect myself from the negativity, I've, I have kind of shut down some of my vulnerability in a way mm-hmm. altogether. Is there yeah. a link between that experience in your late 30s and uh, something you alluded to about like the high school years and racism and some of the things? Yeah, in some ways, you know, well, when I was in high school and experienced this, you know, racism and bigotry and ugliness, you know, I I write about this in my book. There are two or three pivotal moments in my life, and one of them I was 15. This is March of 1995, and I've been harassed horribly by racist students at this school for almost two years. And then I got brutally assaulted in March of my sophomore year of high school. And I ended up missing the rest of my sophomore year of high school and all of my junior year of high school recovering from surgeries and injuries. Mm -hmm. And it was brutal. And I think had that not happened to me, I I loathe that it happened. And there's a part of me that regrets that it ever happened, but because it happened, it made me very sensitive to hurting people, mm-hmm. very sensitive to people in physical pain. Like I have, I've always had an enormous heart for people that are ailing, that, have, that have, in part because like even now I have pain from the, those injuries. I had three spinal surgeries. I've had, uh, you know, horrible damages to my sinuses and other things that I've kept with me all these years. Mm -hmm. So it made me like super sensitive to people in pain. And so like this initial trauma that I experienced as a teenager sensitized me to injustice, to violence. And then I have found that being very sensitive to it for over 20 years, I now find myself drifting to a place, not where I'm insensitive to violence or trauma, but where for after 20 years of being very open emotionally, I, for the first time in my life, kind of find myself closing off in a way that I don't, I'm not comfortable with, but I know that I did it out of necessity. Right. And I've tried to like, so here's a way that that comes out. Like, so that my wife may have, like, a real earnest criticism of me. And my brain processes her earnest criticism in the same way that it processes a hateful troll online. Mm. It's not the same. Yeah. I don't... But that's what trauma does. Yeah, and so yeah. all of a sudden... And it took me a while to fit, to understand why over the past couple of years when my wife would have like real concerns or critiques to where they just fell right off of me. And I realized, which is not my way, um, I just realized, oh, I have, I have put up a wall 
that not only blocks out the ugliness, but it even blocks out the, the feedback from people that I love. And mm-hmm. so I am... I'm trying to reel that back in, but I've had a hard time doing it, man. Yeah. yeah. And and I'm amazed. At, I mean, something I was thinking earlier is how your heart still is open despite all the years of all of, all of this. Because, uh, you know, earlier you were naming hate as based in fear, you know, things like that. And it's... Uh, you're still you're still open somewhere. I'm trying no man. It's <laughs> not I don't have a hard heart. Yeah. But my heart has hardened to a lot of ugliness that's directed to me and the consequence of that is it also causes me to be hard in other ways that I don't want to be. Right. Yeah. And so um like I have I think um still a abnormal sensitivity to people's pain and trauma that I in some ways kind of absorb it as my own. Mm -hmm. And so when people come to me and they're desperate, I understand it. Like I I have felt that myself before. Right. And I I remember what it was like to need help and feel shunned or ignored. Mm-hmm. And so the best I can, I try to I try to help as many people as I can, as deeply as I can. Yeah. And, um, you know, when I see, I saw somebody um, saying on social media, maybe yesterday, that I was, that I did all of this for fame. And um, it's only a thing that you could say if you weren't experiencing what I experienced. Right. Like my family knows, if I could trade in being well known, I I would trade it back in in a moment. The only reason I even continue to accept being well known and like don't revert back into a shell is because I hope that I can leverage it somehow to do good. Mm-hmm. To um, if I can't, I'd rather not even have it. Yeah, and so I'm. Anybody who thinks I do anything that I do for fame or recognition, they don't understand the cost right. for for me and my family. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What uh, role does community play for you? Um, Are you able to enjoy that, or is that something that's difficult? Not much, man. I for years um, when when I was a pastor, and even when we were on the staffs of other churches. Those church communities were a huge part of our lives. And not just the, the physical church, but the, the friends and networks that we developed. Mm-hmm. And I think over the past couple of years, we have found it particularly difficult to be in community. And some of that is, it's been, we've tried a couple of times actually. We've, not just in not just through churches, although we've attended some churches here and there, we've tried to develop new sets of friends, and some of the struggle is it has been difficult for us to tell who who is an earnest friend and who may be present because they are a, a fan or a supporter. Mm. And so the fame piece really gets in the way of that. We've had a few weird moments where 
good people kind of got close to us, but we realized that it wasn't necessarily as friends, but as something else. Right. And that hurts, man. And yeah. so um, it, it did cause me to understand better how other well-known people struggle with this. Mm. Yeah. Um, I think it makes all of the hardest problems that much more difficult. Yeah. Sounds very lonely. Yeah, it is lonely, man. And I have friends that I've had for my whole life. And so there are guys that I can still share my pain with and bounce my problems off of. But most of them are guys that live all over the country. So, you know, having a strong local community, it makes a big difference when you have it. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. I want to be mindful of your time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, uh, Yeah, let's see what else you got. Yeah. So out of everything, there's so much to choose from, but out of everything that's wrong in the world right now, what what makes you ache the most right now? Uh, That's a question, man, that I think about a lot. And I I try to help people. I still travel and speak around the country. And I I try to slip in. I'll I'll regularly have people come up to me and ask me if I was a pastor or something because they hear the way I present problems. And I I frame it like this. I tell people um, when I travel and speak, and over the past few years, I've traveled to... 45 states and countries all over the world and I tell people that I don't care so much that people care about the problems that I'm passionate about so I fight a lot against mass incarceration and police brutality and there are a lot of personal reasons how I arrived at that that are just uniquely personal to me And I tell people, if you want to make those issues your issue, please, come on, I I welcome you. Let's let's fight, let's organize together to make the world a better place. But what I try to explain to people is, less than I want you to choose my issue, I just want everybody to choose an issue. Mm. And I tell people, you, if the people around you don't know what your issue is, you probably haven't chosen one. Wow. Because there's not not you, there are strangers in this building that know a little bit about me and they could probably tell you what my issues are. Right. Because they see it, they hear it. You couldn't know me and not know that I'm fighting against mass incarceration and police brutality. I've made it obvious. Mm -hmm. And what I try to tell people is if it's not, I'm not so concerned over what you tell me your issue is because a lot of people have answers for that. I want to know what the people around you think your issue is Mm -hmm. because that's probably a better indication of the reality of it. Right. And, And the truth is when you pick something, it could be, for my wife, her issues are not mass incarceration and police brutality. She teaches kids how to read. So children's literacy is a huge thing for her. That'll never be my issue. Mm-hmm. I'll support her and let that be her issue. She'll support me and mine. But anybody who knows her knows she cares about this. Mm-hmm. And, and what, what a complimentary set of issues. Yeah. Well, and but we're night and we're, we're, they're yeah. complimentary and. The truth is, 
if you can interrupt negative trends in early childhood development, it stops the school to prison pipeline. Mm -hmm. So many studies show that the average reading level of prison inmates across the country is sometimes second to fourth grade reading levels. And they did not choose crime because they struggled to read. It's not a one-for-one comparison. Mm -hmm. But because people who struggle to read then all of a sudden have fewer opportunities, struggle to be on the right trajectory to college and career Mm -hmm. it it what it does is it closes 10 doors that are good and it opens a few that are often really bad right and so people don't see childhood literacy as something as like a civil rights issue but it damn sure is Mm -hmm. like if you can if you can teach kids to read well it'll open up a thousand doors for them later in life and um and so we we complement each other well, but we 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 laugh now because we're like night and day right. different, you know. Yeah. So on the flip side of that, what brings you the most hope and joy right now? Um, there are a lot of things, and I still I still have a lot of hope. As ugly as the world can be, I I have hope for a couple of reasons. I I don't think that we've thrown our very best work at our worst problems. Mm. And so when I look at all types of horrible problems, not just with mass incarceration, it could be with the environment, it could be with, uh, uh, with housing or healthcare. It could, I mean, even it could be, I'm into even public issues like transportation systems. When I look at public works and other things, I'm like, damn, we're not doing. We're not throwing our best solutions at almost any of our problems. Right. And so, part of why I have hope is, I look at our worst problems and I feel like, yeah, I would be discouraged if I looked at our worst problems, and we we threw our very best stuff at it, and they were still right there. I don't think we've thrown our best work at our worst problems, and um. And I, as I see us build smarter solutions to those worst problems, I start to see some victories and success. Um, mm-hmm. In my work, uh, just two weeks ago, we helped elect a new district attorney in San Francisco, a guy named Chase Boudin, who actually comes from a place of great pain. Both of his mother and father were convicted of murder when he was just a little boy. And uh, his father's they both received life sentences and his father's still in prison to this day. And Chase is the first person I know of that's a child of incarcerated or formerly incarcerated parents who's now running the justice system of a major American city. Wow. And it changes the whole way somebody sees it. He mm-hmm. grew up literally visiting his mother and father mm-hmm. in prison almost every week. So right? his heart was seasoned for his work the way yours was for you. Oh, work. yeah, man. Yeah. And, but we, a few years ago, we never thought someone like Chase could be district attorney of, a, of mm-hmm. a major city. So I have hope when I see, like, okay, this is one of the ways we're trying to make the city mm-hmm. and the world a better place. So you have to have some wins along the way. Right. And I think... Sometimes when people become real accustomed to losing, it that's one of the ways hopelessness really sets in. Right. And um, 
I, I'm trying to do things that help people win in some kind of way, mm-hmm. be it an election or a goal or a target, right. just to have some measurable, tangible change. Yeah. I used to be, I, have in, I am encouraged and discouraged by what I'm about to say. I used to think that when all the, now I'm from Kentucky and from Mississippi, I used to think when all the old rednecks from Kentucky and Mississippi died, that racism would be gone. And I was like, just when, when all the old ones die, we're going to be okay. <laughs> but it's generational. Oh, man. Yeah. Now, some of the worst bigots in the country are young. Mm-hmm. And and I realized that I was dead wrong, that it is very generation. It's been passed down and adopted by a new generation in a way I never expected. Mm-hmm. Simultaneously, I see young people doing brilliant work all over the country. And so I'm, I'm, I still have great hope in the work that they do. And, um, you know, but, but not in a naive way. I think my old hope was more rooted in a naive thought that certain problems in this country would pass when a generation passed away. And I see that that's not the case. Yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So um, one of the, like the thing I like to ask at the very end of these is um, what, if you had, so at this particular moment in time, um, what is the thing like right now on this day, if you had to have parting words for the world, um, what what's your truth right now? Mm. That's hard, man. Um, well, there, there's at least one thing that I think about a lot, and I try to make sure I don't just do it with my words, but I try to show it the best I can, the best I know how. You know, I try to tell people, don't make the people around you that you love, don't make them guess how you feel about them. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot about that with my brother. My brother and I, um, we told each other we loved each other, and we told each other when we were proud of each other. When he passed away, I didn't feel, I, didn't, I don't think there was anything unspoken between us. Mm-hmm. And as hurt as I was for his wife and kids and our family that he passed, I had a real peace that he knew how I felt about him and I knew how he felt about me. And I would encourage people, don't don't let time pass where the people that you treasure in your life, where you pass and they're left wondering how you really felt, how you really thought, it doesn't have to just be your kids or your family. It could be your mentors, your heroes. You know, live in such a way that the people you love are well aware that you love them, mm-hmm. that you value them, that you treasure them, and and try to show them that I, I, this is where I struggle. You know, I, I tend to show people I love them in the way that I know love. So for me, telling people with words that I love them is the way that makes sense to me. But sometimes you have to show them, yeah, some, you may have to be present. You may, you may have to, to, to go out of your way just to, to show them. And you'll never regret that. Like mm-hmm. you can't, 
there's not a there's not a wasted minute in letting those that you treasure just know how much you treasure. There's not a wasted dollar. And at the end of the day, uh, that's what it's all about, man. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Um, I'm trying. Uh, yeah, I, I try to practice that, but it's aspirational as well. You know, yeah. like I got I want to do better, but I think that's a, um, a principle to live by. And as, not to be morbid, but in my family, we often are so worried sometimes about my safety or the family's safety that we've tried to make it a habit to be extra loving at every goodbye. Mm-hmm. You know, not knowing if something could happen and that be our last goodbye. And so we all we all have a, a real joyful goodbye and I love you to each other almost every day. And, um, and, and that's something that, you know, for all the things I don't do, uh, I'm, I'm glad that my wife, my kids, my mother and others, my, my, I tell my best friends I love them and how much I care about them. And I I know that that's one thing I've gotten right, mm-hmm. and and I would wish that for anybody for sure. Yeah, yeah man. Thank you for that. Yeah, brother. Yeah, yeah, appreciate you, man. Thank you. Yeah, glad yeah. to talk with you, man. Yeah. Thank you for listening to episode one of the Voices of Wisdom podcast. I'd love to hear from you and get to know you. If you want to know more about me and about the podcast, go to tonycaldwell.com. There are links there that can help you get in contact with me. There are also links to my writing, uh, speaking engagements, counseling services, the Reparations Education Project, and more. Uh, Again, go to TonyCaldwell.com. This podcast would not be possible without the talents of Melanie Cummings, Matt Lepley, and Pete Lepley. Uh, You can find them at MelanieCummings.com, MattLepley.com and phonetichero.bandcamp.com. The music for this episode is provided by Birds of Chicago. You can find out more about them at birdsofchicago.com. And here are the links I promised to Sean's work. You can find him at seanking.org. Also, I highly encourage you to follow him on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and also sign up for his newsletters. Uh, He has... uh, almost daily prompts to ways that you can get involved in nationwide movements uh, that really bring about change in a very real way. I also encourage you to go to the northstar.com, the Real Justice Pack, realjusticepac.org, flip the Senate at howweflipthesenate.com, the Action Pack, theactionpac.com, also encourage you to listen to his podcast, The Breakdown, and look for his upcoming podcast that he'll be co-hosting with his wife, Ray, called Married to the Movement. Thank you, and stay tuned for episode two coming in the very near future. Thanks again for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and help us spread the word about this podcast. And also, uh, please stay tuned for upcoming episodes. I've been having some amazing conversations with some incredible people, and I can't wait for you to hear it. See you soon. Do not feel the winter blowing In the hearts of men I've seen American flowers 
they will bloom again. 